Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, LA, and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello, Nilanjana, and thank you for agreeing to talk to me on this amazing podcast platform quarantine tapes. Thank you, Navin. Thank you, Paul. Holden Graber, we have him to thank for, and we have the wonderful Onesis LA and Dublab who made this uh, possible. And today is an interesting day because it's the 18th of March and it's the kind of anniversary of our great Indian lockdown. So, dear Nilanjana, and Nilanjana Bhomik, proud moment, as it were, with that lovely Time Magazine thing. So the gloves are off, my friend. I fear this state of control disarray, one in which if you make up a falsehood and repeat it enough across the various media, it becomes a universally accepted truth, making it extremely easy to manipulate virulence, a word that, as you know, expresses anger that leads to gunning down a man because he is a Muslim. It is also, alas, open season for women. Anyone can be beaten physically, arrested for the slightest excuse. The arrest is not something that a a court, for example, will uphold, but it causes fear. What will it take, I wonder, for people who are riding high in this strange nationalistic fervor to come down to earth, to laud a pathological liar just because he genuflects before a copy of the constitution cannot surely change his spots. And yet our friendly fence-sitters, and you know who I talk about, who are otherwise vocal and quick to the draw when it comes to witch-hunting the weak, these very same, forgive me, journalists are already beginning to sing his praises to actually dismiss his campaign of hate as strategy to get to be king and then overnight, having won his objective, turn into some kind of a benevolent being who will heal the nation. is not just wishful thinking, it is what it is, abject surrender. So Nilanjana, talk to me about our immediate hope, the farmers, women on the front lines and your cover story for time magazine and how every such act of resistance leads to stemming the erosion to me also about our collective griefs in the plural during this strange fractured time and our personal ones you know navin we are very good at surrendering and uh, when we are asked to sit we do one better and we crawl. And I don't exactly know when our spines became so malleable, but they did. And uh, maybe it is because of a misplaced fear that Mm -hmm. comes with living in a 
developing country that our hard-won successes will be taken away from us. And I don't think it's a wrong fear or the fact that we value our wealth, our lifestyles uh, more than um, empathy with our fellow humans. Um, I don't know if I can blame anyone for that because um, a large majority of people in this country have come into affluence after a lot of sacrifice and struggle. Of course, they will be fearful of losing it all. Mm -hmm. And that fear, that fear can be abandoned only when they are on the edge of a precipice. And the only way forward is to retrace our steps back in anger. And that is exactly why the farmers, along with every other group mm -hmm. or individuals that have spoken up since 2014, are our hope. Now, of course, the farmers matter more because they matter to the government. They are a group that cannot be ignored, especially the wealthier farmers from the northern states. They matter also because they have managed to undo much of the polarization that had seeped into our country over the last many years, and they have been able to do it in a very organic manner. Mm -hmm. There have been protests, as you know, but every protest has been discredited in some way or the other, uh, using a caste angle or a community angle or a religious angle. Mm -hmm. But it is not so easy this time around, because as I say, the farmers have come together. They have rose above all petty differences of caste, community, religion, and even gender. So do you see hope? I mean, there is hope, you know, but, but I also fear that we live amidst a lot of noise. Things are happening around us at a very quick pace. And, you know, things happen, they get escalated, you know, everyone joins the bandwagon, shout, outreach, and then move on to something else. And then what do we leave behind? We leave behind a trail of misplaced hopes as political prisoners rot in jail, a young student, an old poet, a, a woman activist who stood up for the disenfranchised, a doctor who saved lives, a young climate activist. Dreams are dying all around us so fast that sometimes I feel I'm holding my breath waiting eagerly to wake up and find that this is all just a bad dream. So yes, there is hope, but there is fear too. And this fear that it is all just a bad dream. It isn't really, is it? I mean, is that, it's more than just a bad dream. Well, I think, you know, uh, the fact that we realize that this is a bad dream, uh, that realization is quite sobering. And I think you know, a lot of us are, are, understanding that you know it is actually you know happening in reality like you know it might feel like a bad dream and for the longest time ever we thought it is a bad dream and we'll wake up people will wake up and now we realize that this is uh you know reality you know what's happening in our country at the moment the slow erasure of who we are and who we want it to be is a reality now what do you do i don't know all i know is that we don't give up and we go and find hope and not wait for hope to come to us. I found hope in Scheinberg. I found hope in the student protests. I found hope in the women farmers. You know, as men you mentioned my uh, time cover story on the women farmers. And I found hope in them. And I found more than hope at the farmer protests because that is how that story came about is because I also found a vision of gender equality that I never thought I would see in my own lifetime. Gender equality is a kind of resistance, right? Women at the forefront. It, it, yes. 
Yes, absolutely. You know, and also, you know, like gender, uh, women have been part of, um, you know, the resistance in India for, for decades now. You know, starting right from the Chipko movement um, in 1970s, you know, to to the Bhopal, uh, um, you know, the, the fight for compensation and justice in the Bhopal tragedy. It's all fronted by women because because women have have staying power. Um, anyone you talk to, they'll say that you know women have the staying power. They can they can uh, pull along a resistance. You know, they don't give up. Uh, the Bhopal uh, protest movement has been going on for almost three decades now. And that's the power of women. But but what has happened is that we stop looking at them after a while. And but you know, when I went to the 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 the, the farmers protest, the first thing I was reminded of is um, you know Kamla Basin, a feminist activist, author, and poet. I I worship her. She is the one I read when I need to clear my head. And um, she delivered a keynote speech at an international seminar on feminism vis-a-vis uh, -vis activism that anyone who recognizes that in the present world, women and girls face discrimination is a feminist. Mm. So uh, men can also be feminists. But the part that, you know, like really stayed with me and that I kept thinking about it while I was you know, like spending time on, uh, at, the, at the farmer protests, you know, with the women farmers is that she says, and I quote, a housewife and full-time mother who brings up her daughter with dignity, who teaches her sons equality and respect for women is a feminist. You do not have to go and join protests and shout slogans to qualify as a feminist. Although if you do that, also things would change faster. And I thought of this in Shahin Bagh, which is also led by middle-class housewives. And I thought of this at the farmer protest, also, you know, fronted by women from middle-class traditional families where gender divisions are etched in stone. I mean, this is interesting for me. Forgive me for sure. interrupting you, hold the thought, but I, I, you know, your article, the one line that stood out for me right at the beginning was, why should we go back? This is not just the men's protest. I mean, this is wonderful. Please, sorry, carry on. Absolutely. No, absolutely, absolutely. For me, that moment was a goosebump moment for me. You know, I mean, the um, highest of authorities in this country, um, if I may use the word, has the temerity to say, women and old people go back. Yeah. And the women, you know, like pick up the mic and say, no, we will not. Why should we go back? Mm. This is... Our, and, you know, this is a very watershed moment because this is the time that the women realize that um, the injustice of, you know, toiling in the fields for hours and hours. And then when it comes to this historical moment, they are, they're trying to be erased from it. So the, the protest is going to be all male farmers and they're nobodies. They're just laborers. Mm. So this is, I think, also a realization. And, and, and the reason I was, you know, I was talking about, you know, middle class, you know, traditional families, they come from middle class traditional families where, uh, you know, the men are all, always in the forefront and um, women are always a step behind. And in a middle class family, you know, I grew up in a middle class family. In a middle class family, sometimes you, you go along with things because you don't want to stir the hornet's nest so much. And then you start the nest and where do you go from there? 
you know you can't really you know you do not have the wherewithal or often the education or the support to actually you know like protest and just just say oh, oh i i give up i'm going you you don't do that in middle class families you in middle class families you you adjust you compromise and you say that this is not the battle i need to pick up which which uh which is almost always all all your back mm. you just basically compromise and the fact that this women you know like uh sort of you know um came forward and said that no we will not go back and you know it's it's it just you know for me it was just so overwhelming you know i also like to turn your attention to something else that comes across in your writing this business of loss and disease and a sense of constant grieving as we struggle to find some form of meaning and this is across genders even a way forward almost as in strategy not just to resist and square our shoulders for a kind of long siege like the farmers are doing great strategists we have to remember these are all war veterans but also to survive without losing hope i fear for their mental health this is not easy you know um like everyone else we as in the women mm. we are also experiencing a slow burning grief a roiling despair as we mm. as we and, and and it started way way back mm. you know before you know this women came out and we it started when we watched thousands of this poor migrant laborers women and children among them walking miles or or packed into rooms or bus stations or the back of trucks to reach their homes um but women are so used to disenfranchisement dispossession we felt this grief keenly for, for myself for two nights i could not sleep i looked at the visuals and i just sobbed unwilling to believe that we have done this to the men and women who were already struggling to stay afloat and you know because i work um, a lot in the interiors of uttar pradesh many of the migrant laborers are from there they come to delhi to work and um, they began to call me in total panic they had no information so i sure. spent two days trying to arrange i couldn't wallow in my grief i needed to get back on my feet and i spent two days trying to arrange transport for them sometimes just you know being on the phone with them and just just comforting them but mostly you know keeping them informed but you know at that time what happened was that, that their equanimity in the face of what to us was a mountain of misery for me was also a hidden revolution a revolution no one really talked about because we were you know feeling very sorry for them so they walked those miles they reached their homes and in the process they opened up the first spark of resistance against the regime that is essentially anti poor and anti people they refused to huddle together in the cities jobless hungry exposed to the virus in a city that merely tolerates them they showed us the way they showed us it can be done you are forced to admit then that you who perhaps might be sitting on the fence yeah that the state doesn't have your back it doesn't have my back it doesn't have anyone's back we are living in a failed state a failed state that knows that to hide its failures it must go brazen all out stun the people into submission and this is where women come into the picture supplicants you know we i feel we're all reduced to having to beg for every little right that comes with citizenship you know the citizen's role i feel like many many others like you feel that we are merely living on borrowed time 
those of us who still have the temerity to speak up to protest. So the grief that we're experiencing in India at the moment is as profound as it is stunning. We were mourning the loss of a democracy and at least some of us were mourning the loss of a democracy. And very shrinking democracies, yeah. Shrinking democracy and secularism. But we were doing it collectively. We were, you know, and then suddenly, you know, the pandemic scattered us on our own islands of grief or griefs, as you say. This is a heartwarming, heart-wrenching, almost it's a combination of compassion and heartbreaking islands of grief. I salute your sense of resolve, of hope. I mean, this is cathartic, but please carry on. It is. It is, you know, it is cathartic. You know, we were forced to face our fears, look apprehensions in the eye. There was no way we could distract ourselves. And we had to face the reality. Some of us had to face the reality that our world has changed beyond our wildest imagination. But to me, that is also a good thing, you know, because I always feel that, you know, if things remain the same, people remain the same too. This fear, this uncertainty, this is good in the sense that, you know, that it, it is making us think, it is making us come out of our comfort zone. That the farmers' protest is the result of this. It's a subversive message from a from a group of people who would normally you wouldn't you know uh, sort of you know like um, come together to hold such an intense anti-government protest. Things have to change now. It's very clear. Yeah, yeah. I know we've, we we had to move. I mean, we've kind of learned to embrace our fears. But you know, there's there's something I I I would want to point out to you, which you must know. You must live with it. People must tell you. But that. You come from a very, excuse me for this, but it has to be said, you come, dear Nilanjana, from a very proud lineage of some desperately strong, feisty women. Would you like to tell us about? Yes, you know, I come from a long line of, you know, very strong women, including, you know, Mahashweta Devi, who we call Bui. She's... Uh, yes, my friend and author. Yes, I miss her. Yes, absolutely. And oh, she's... I am uh, related to her by marriage. So uh, my husband, Tathagata, is her grandson. And, uh, you know, then, you know, my mother-in-law, Pranati Bhattacharya, she was also, you know, a staunch feminist and friend. And your mother. And my mother, you know, she was... A, she was a... You know, she was one of the first, you know, women cops in India. And... You know, the only thing I've learned from them is never give up, never give in. They were almost, you know, militant in that. Like they would get angry with me. How dare you even think of giving up? You are not giving up. My mother never gave up. She struggled against a very conservative spouse, struggled to balance work and life, and yet never even entertained the thought of giving up her independence or a job. Neither do you. You get a lot of shit and trolling, if you will excuse the word. It, it, it doesn't, you know, I mean, I look at trolling as it's someone's job, you know, to do that. And that that doesn't define, you know, who I am. But, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's part, you know, if you get faced by what people are saying to you and um, I don't know, I mean, like I, I I'm never bothered by what people are saying to me or saying about me because I'm very confident, you know, because because of the women who have formed me. 
I know that what I am doing, I know that you know it is right. It is, it is, it is, it is the correct thing to do. Like uh, you know, if I just go back to Vui, um, uh, uh, you know, Mahashita Devi, she was such a fearless woman as a feminist. She used to use this phrase, uh, "body peledevo," which translates as exactly, literally, physically throwing your body into the fray. I mean, it's such a visual image, and you tend to do that yourself. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I, I have. I have learned that from her, you know, I mean, um, I think, you know, most of my life, you know, like the time that I spent with her have been spent literally gazing at her in awe. And I mean, you know, it's not like, you know, she just sort of invited that awe. And as a feminist, she was invincible. I feel proud that you know i i'm i'm related to her that you know i am like you know i come from the family that she was hemming at that point of time as a feminist she was invincible her art was inseparable from her activism her empathy was inseparable from her optimism she lived her life standing in her power both both she and her son nobarun my father in law made courage looked normal so easy and fear so overrated mm. and they passed it down to all of us her life especially as a woman for me was a lesson in living our own truth and power even though they might be inconvenient for others and and those others might be people very close to us or related to us fear was never a natural feeling for any of us our first instinct was and always will be to fight back to stand up for truth and justice to to stand with the people sure that's the important thing to stand with the people at this point i would because we will run out of time soon uh, i want to bring up this the, the personal excitement even though i am not publishing it in complain complain uh, to tell us a little bit about your your forthcoming book and then then perhaps you know you can have one last something that you share with the listeners tell us about your book lies our mother told us is that the name Yes, that's the working title, and it is um, it is something. The book I have I wrote it very quickly, but it is something I've lived with my entire life. Um, the genesis of the book is that my mother always told me that if if I studied hard, I could have a job, and when I would be financially empowered, my life would change. So the book profiles women from middle class families. I grew up in a middle class family myself. and i know one of the biggest challenges of feminism are middle class homes where things are neither here nor there and everything is pushed under the carpet and here you know i'm reminded of uh, moshida devi's uh, very um, iconic uh, um, keynote uh, speech at the jaipur literary fest in 2013 where she said that you know i hate middle class morality uh, you know it's all about like suppression and oppression and i i totally you know understand what she means by that and and this is like you know she is talking from her experience you know all you know from many years back you know and uh, according to that you know like i come you know like uh, among you know at that point of time you know i mean i am in my early 40s so for us to have the same experience of this this uh, middle class morality which suppresses and oppresses women is actually quite tragic that you know we are still you know going through that so you know the book looks at that you know it examines that and then looks for hope you know somewhere in the violence of shahin bagh or the borders of the indian capital and many other places you know where women are still you know like speaking up trying to you know like make their voices heard yeah i mean yeah. yeah oh okay sorry yeah so i think that's that's a a, a nice note and i wonder if you 
want to talk or tell us some sort of your final parting comment on this business, what we began with, this sort of hope during the course of this um, struggle or fight or the fact that now with our backs to the wall, but looking ahead to the struggle, women, men. Um, so yes, give me your final word on this. I mean, you know, to just the fact that we have some sort of a hope is great. It could have gone either way. The fact that the farmers protest, you know, like came up at a time where we were almost at the brink of giving up hope. That's great. And the fact, you know, um, that we are beginning to look at the world through the eyes of women, it is even greater. I'm reminded of Kamlaji again, you know, when she said that when we look at the world through women's eyes, we are looking at the world through the eyes of the most exploited, most oppressed, because even among the poor, poor women, are, like even among the poor, women are the poorest. Among the Dalits, uh, women are the most oppressed. You know, among the blacks, women are again the most oppressed. So when we see the world through the eyes of women, only then we get a perspective of the marginalized, the excluded, and the oppressed. And I think we are beginning to look at the world through the eyes of women. But it would be, might sound presumptuous, but with every struggle, every movement, I see more and more women from varied backgrounds, women who would earlier not even associate themselves with the term feminism because of the man-hating connotation that patriarchy imposed on it, a daring to dream. I see the tightening of their jaws. I see their fists getting stronger. Their handshakes are firmer. Their eyes look straight at you. They are not looking down anymore. There's a rage in them. And that rage is now turning into a revolution and an echo. In the words of Sylvia Plath, I am, I am. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nilanjana. That was, that was wonderful. And I think we are at the end of our time. I thank you for joining us at this conversation. And thank you once again, Paul, for giving us this opportunity. And we will talk again soon. You take care. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.